Hey, morning, everybody. You know, I was fortunate as I was growing up. I had a relationship with both sets of my grandparents. And uh, one of my grandparents lived super close. And uh, so I would go to her house a lot on weekends. And uh, my grandma actually had a picture of Jesus hanging in her home. It was the same picture of Jesus that every grandma in America had hanging in their home at the same time. It was this one right here. And uh, as you can, and what was kind of odd to me about this picture in her home was that, uh, you know, I knew everybody else uh, in all the pictures in her home. I heard her talk about them and, you know, refer to them and I'd been with them. But see, my family didn't go to church when I was growing up. So I knew because of the halo, right, or the aura or whatever you want to call it there, I knew that this was a holy man but I didn't know who this was. I never heard my grandmother reference him. Um, I just knew he was probably somebody important that lived like a long, long time ago. Uh, but it was odd to me that she, all the other pictures I, you know, I knew, and, but him, um, I didn't. I didn't know. And as you can see, there have been a lot of representations of Jesus over the years. Uh, in fact, uh, I think this is really important to understand all these different, the way people see, the way people put Jesus on paper and on, on canvas. And I think we're tempted to do the same thing in our mind. And so let me, let me kind of tease this out for just a few minutes. So I think something that we do is we say things like this. Well, I like to think of Jesus as ABCD. And what I want to point out is that when you say things like that, that's not the, that's not the Jesus that's not the Jesus portrayed in Scripture. That's the Jesus of our imagination. And there's a big difference between the Jesus portrayed in Scripture and the Jesus of our imagination. So, for example, if you said to me, if you said to somebody, hey, well, you know, I like to think of Pastor Brad as somebody who likes ballet and um, I don't know. Uh, let me think. What's that? Opera. An opera. Uh, you, in saying that, all you're proving is how little you know me, right? Uh, but yet we'll make we'll make statements about Jesus that have no bearing. You know, see, we don't get to decide who Jesus is, right? Jesus tells us who he is in the same way that we tell one another who we are, and then we believe that. And so here's my point. Any picture of Jesus that you have in your mind, it's important that, we're, that that picture come from Scripture. That it come from Scripture because that's the way that Jesus wants to be represented. So uh, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to open up he Hebrews. We're going to look at the verses that Greg just read. And we're going to see four portraits or four pictures of Jesus there that are so vital and so important to our lives. So um, the first one is this. 
Um, oh, by the way, before I go into that, I do want to talk a little bit more about this whole Jesus of your imagination thing. Anybody remember the two Step Stepford Wives movies? Uh, so if you didn't, it's no big deal. I'll fill you in. The husbands of Stepford, Connecticut decide to have their wives turned into robots who never cross the wills or never contradict, you know, their husbands. So a Stepford wife, she was compliant, she was beautiful, but no one would describe a marriage to a robot as intimate or personal, right? And so here's my point. If you pick and choose what you will or won't believe about Jesus and reject everything else, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? Because here's what tends to happen when we conjure up a Jesus of our imagination or a God of our imagination. That God will never disagree with you. He will never overrule you. He will never contradict you because he's a God made kind of in your image. He has your tastes and, you know, your habits and your affections. And so he'll never disagree with you. In essence, you will have a Stepford God. You will. A God essentially of your own making, but certainly not a God uh, with whom you can have a relationship in which he challenges you, grows you, contradicts you. I mean, only if your God can say things that challenge you and even outrage you and make you struggle, will you know that you have gotten a hold of a real God and not a Stepford God? So, let's dig into these four pictures of Jesus. So, in verse 9, uh, the author points out that Jesus has been crowned with honor and glory. So who do you put a crown on? You put a crown on a king or a king or a queen, right? And so the first portrait that we see of Jesus here is that he is a king who got involved in our lives, who came for us. And I want to uh, contrast that with a story some of you might be familiar with. So in the early hours of March 13, 1964, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese was stabbed by a mugger outside the apartment building across the street from where she lived in Queens, New York. She screamed, oh my God, he stabbed me. And so, because it was Queens, lots of lights came on. People looked out their window, right? But nobody came to help her. Now, when she, when she cried out, oh, he stabbed me, the mugger backed away. He started to leave. But when he noticed that the people that had turned on their lights, nobody was coming out to help her, uh, he later... Uh, uh, he, it, well, he later came back to her, right? But nobody wanted to put themselves in harm way. It was actually documented that 37 households saw this incident and not one person stepped out of their home to help her. And so when the mugger saw that nobody was coming back, he went back to the alley that she had drug herself to and he killed her and he took $49 from her purse. Uh, because nobody wanted to get involved. Nobody wanted to be a part of that. Well, in contrast to that story, Jesus was a king who got involved. And he didn't just do it at the risk of his life. He did it at the cost of his life. 
And furthermore, he tasted death for each of us. That's what the author here said in verse 9, right? And it wasn't like we were innocent victims of a mugging. Unlike her, we deserved death. The Bible says every one of us in the room, have, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we were deserving of death, but Jesus took in and stepped in and died in our place. He took his, uh, the punishment you and I deserved, he took that on himself. So he's, first of all, the first portrait of him is he's a king who stepped out, who came, who got involved. And then the second picture I want us to focus on here. It's found in verses uh, 10 and then verses 14 and 15 is this. Jesus is a champion who saves. And we'll talk about what he saves from in a minute. Uh, Verse 10 in some of your versions will say, the version Greg read, it says pioneer. Some of your versions will say author. I think the better word here should be translated champion. Uh, And jump down to verse 14 where the writer picks up this image of a champion again. He says, since therefore the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, in ancient times, fights were often settled between armies or countries by selecting a representative to fight on behalf of the army. So, think Hector and Achilles, for example, right? Or if you want a biblical example, think David and Goliath, right? A giant that terrifies everybody. David, a little unassuming shepherd boy, takes a very unlikely weapon, goes out, slays the giant while everyone else stands on the sideline and watches. See, David was their champion, This is a picture of Jesus who won the battle against the real giant, which is death, while we all stood on the sidelines and not only wouldn't lift a finger, but we couldn't lift a finger because none of us in the room had the power to defeat death like our Jesus. And so in doing, he delivered us from the one thing that we're all most terrified of, death, dying. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld says that the two biggest fears in the United States are uh, number one is the fear of public speaking behind number two the fear of death and so Jerry Seinfeld says what that means is that most people in America would rather be the one uh, in the casket than the one delivering the eulogy I thought that was really funny none of you did nobody are, are you people listening this morning? Are you dialed in with me? I hope so. Yeah, I mean, but it's just the point is, you know, we really do. We're, 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 we're just deeply terrified of death. In fact, Leo Tolstoy, some of you have heard his name, he wrote uh, this. He said, something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I had a large estate, which without much effort on my part, increased. My name was respected. I enjoyed physical strength, and yet I could not live because of the knowledge of my coming death. And here's what he writes. Soon, 
Not only will I not exist, but eventually no one will exist who will remember anything I have ever, ever said or done. Therefore, what difference does it make whether or not I do this thing or that thing or even nothing at all? For a time, it is possible to live intoxicated with life, but as soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that life in the face of death is a fraud and a stupid fraud at that. This is, this is what the author of Hebrew is saying. The fear of death keeps us in captivity. This is why we do things like this. We, buy, we don't buy death insurance, right? Nobody wants to buy death insurance. So what kind of insurance do we buy? Oh, sure. When I was a little guy, they would sell a cereal on TV. It was called Life Cereal. It flew off shelves. People loved it. But anybody, would anybody run to the store to buy a cereal called Death? No, I don't think so, right? It wouldn't be a very popular sell because people don't like to think about death. In the 1970s, Dr. Ernest Becker wrote a book. It sounds like a real happy book. It's called The Denial of Death. Doesn't that seem like a Debbie Downer read to you? The Denial of Death. And here's what Dr. Becker said. He said that the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts human beings like nothing else. And he said that almost all human activity uh, is designed largely to avoid the reality of death, to overcome it in some way by denying it or uh, denying that it's the final destiny for every man. In other words, what he's saying is denying that the death rate, the last time I checked, was hovering at about 100%. It's pretty steady throughout history, right? Um, and so we're held captive by death. Oh, and here's, here's a quote from his book. He said this about death. This is the terror. To have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression, and with all of this, still to die. Because that is the fate of every man. And what the author of Hebrews is arguing is that Jesus became our champion who by himself defeated death when no one else would and no one else could. And better yet, he took the power of death away from our enemy, the devil. So uh, he was our champion. He, th again, think Hector and Achilles, right? Now, there's a lot of ways that we, uh, that a fear of death starts to come out, right? So, for example, when you're held captive by a fear of death, there's an enormous pressure to experience everything you can here and now because this is your only shot, right? I mean, if you're single or you don't find happiness and love, you get desperate because you're not going to get another chance for that, right? Or you start to panic maybe when you see yourself aging. So because, you know, we all recognize that aging is the process of dying. See, this is why we buy things like Botox and why plastic surgery is so popular. This is why men and women begin to gray and color, color their hair uh, when it starts to turn gray. This is why men sometimes have what's called a midlife crisis. They go out and buy a convertible and, uh, and try to find a younger woman. 
See, all of this is the denial of death. Sometimes people are so terrified of death because they fear the judgment of God, right? So they start obsessing and worrying and wondering about appeasing God and making sure that they've done enough for Him to go to heaven when they die. And by the way, this is the opposite of the gospel, and this is why it's so important that Jesus became our champion and conquered death, because it means that all we have to do is put our faith and trust in Him. It's not about what we do, it's about what He has done for us. So here's the point that the author of Hebrews is making. Our champion took our greatest fear, and he put it away, and he did it all by himself, all by himself. And it wasn't like this was easy for him. I want you to think of the picture of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. We're told there that he's so overcome with sorrow. He's so anxious. He knows what is waiting, the kind of death that is waiting on him on the cross. He knows that. And the anxiety of that is so intense that he, he, gets, he has a medical condition. It's actually, it's actually called hematridosis. Hematridosis is when you have so much stress it rarely happens to the human body but it's been documented that you actually sweat blood the capillaries burst under the skin and uh, so you know if you think you've had a stressful day well just thank God that you're not sweating blood in that stress but Jesus was he was he knew this was going to cost him everything See, and our enemy's greatest weapon, the weapon with, uh, that's uh, above it all, uh, all other weapons is death. But our champion defeated it. And then I want you to look in verse 11. It paints a third kind of portrait or picture of Jesus. It says this, that Jesus is a brother who is not ashamed to call you and I brothers and sisters. So I was trying to think of a, a sensitive, delicate way to ask this, but um, there really isn't one. So I'm just going to ask anyway, like, uh, how many of you have somebody in your family who's ever embarrassed you? Me. Yeah. Uh, you're, yeah, Byron says he embarrasses himself, I guess. I'm not sure, right? Now listen, if your hand wasn't up, it's probably you. You're probably the one that embarrasses everybody else in your family, right? I mean, that weird uncle, that eccentric aunt, the overbearing parent, the underachieving sibling. And, and every one of us can remember what it was like to be in middle school. And like the moment that your younger brother or sister would walk in the room, some of your coolness would like drain out, right? Because And they would inevitably like embarrass you or say something just to make you so, so embarrassed. And now Jesus has called anyone who has said yes to him brother and sister, and he is not embarrassed, and he is not ashamed to call you that. He's not ashamed to call you that. You were the family member that Jesus should have been ashamed of. I've been the family member that Jesus should have been ashamed of. But he proudly identifies with you. He claimed you. He looked at you and said, that's my brother. That's my sister. See, even when you and I had failed him and walked away. I want you to think about the genealogy of Jesus. Think about his family tree. It's popular these days to 
check out family trees, uh, right? Well, it was common in those days for kings to publish their genealogies, but if there was a person in their family tree that wasn't honorable or successful, they'd kind of blot out that name and make sure that people saw the, you know, the highlights of their family tree so that somebody would go, wow, this guy comes from a successful line or a powerful line, right? Well, when you read the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus, he doesn't do that at all. You see, when you read through his genealogy, you see Rahab, who was a prostitute. You see unwed mothers. You see a girl who was raped by her uncle. You see David's illegitimate son born out of an adulterous relationship, which resulted in murder. You see people who time and time again failed or disobeyed God and embarrassed themselves. And these were the people that Jesus included in his genealogy. He was not ashamed. They were his brothers and sisters. In fact, one of my favorite stories is in John chapter 20. Jesus says to Mary in the garden after his resurrection, he says, Go and tell my brothers that I have raised... Now listen, I'm just telling you, like if I had raised from the dead, I would not have said, go tell my brothers. Because remember, they all fled. They all ran away. Peter said he would never deny Jesus, and he denied him three times, right? I would have said, you go tell those yellow-bellied, cowardly, sap-sucking disciples that I have finally raised like I told them I was going to about a thousand times. Aren't you glad I'm not Jesus? Well, you should be, but that's your flesh too, right? That's your character too, your nature, because we don't have his nature. We're not like him. He is not ashamed to call you and I brother and sister. And then number four, the fourth portrait that we see of Jesus in the book of Hebrews in verses 17 and 18 is we see a priest who can help. Look what this says. It says, he became a merciful. Let's just pause there. Because some of you, your first thoughts when you think about God, you don't think of the word mercy. You think of the word judge. You think of the word punish. You think of the word shame. And that's not the kind of priest that Jesus is at all. He's not a shaming priest or a judgmental priest or a punishing priest. He's a merciful priest. And he's a faithful, not just a priest, but a high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, we don't use that word propitiation very much, but all that means is he satisfied the payment. In other words, if, if you have a lien on your house and I make propitiation for that, I'm paying for the lien on your house. So in other words, he paid a debt for me that I could have never paid for myself. And he paid a debt for you that you could have never paid for yourself. For because, and then verse 18 for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted now this is a confusing verse for a few reasons because first um, it says in verse 10 that um, uh, that God made the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering well wait a minute wasn't he perfect before that yes he was See, it wasn't like God learned something by being tempted or by suffering. He wasn't like, oh, this is why they hate suffering so much. That was probably a bad idea. That's not what God did. 
It says, on the contrary, it says he was made perfect in the sense that because he faced the same temptations that you and I do, because he suffered in every way just like you and I do, he is the perfect person to come alongside us and see us through and help us out. So his temptation and suffering enables to help us in, in a couple of ways. Number one, psychologically, it just helps to know, right, that when we pray, we pray to a God who has felt and experienced every kind of trial and tribulation that we have. So let me, let's tease this out. So this means that he knows what the lure of temptation feels like firsthand. He knows what it is like to be tired and hungry. He knows what it feels like to weep over a friend's death. He knows what it is like to experience betrayal and rejection by a dysfunctional family. He knows what it feels like to be stabbed in the back by friends, even close friends. He knew what it was like to be single long after the rest of his friends got married. The Gospels record Jesus going to all kinds of weddings well into his 30s, which is when, by the way, most Jewish men would have been married for over a decade and had children of their own by now. So if you're here this morning and you're single, it may help you to realize that every time you pray, you are praying to a 33-year-old single adult adult who never had a wife now technically he does have a wife because you and I are his bride right the church will talk about that in a moment he knew the grief of having a child reject him and walk out on him because in the story of the prodigal son he was the abandoned father He knows what it's like to be a rejected marriage partner because his bride, the church, has spurned him often. And all of this is so important and so meaningful because it means that when he comes alongside us, he comes alongside us as one who gets us and gets it and who knows how it feels. And we know that because he experienced it, He can be moved by it. And he's moved by us. And he's moved by uh, the things that we have to go through. And notice too that it says he helps those who are tempted. It doesn't say that he accuses them or belittles them or judges them. He helps them. And this is so important because whenever we go to God, isn't there always a little concern? Well, what if I go to God and God condemns me? What if I go to God and he doesn't accept me? No. When we go to Jesus, it says he helps us. Helps us. Look, I don't always know what God is doing in pain and suffering. But I know this. I know that that Jesus, whatever pain and suffering is in your life, Jesus has experienced it and felt it. Jesus is the only God that has entered into the suffering of our world. It's so important to get this, right? And because he was tempted, 
like I am, but without sin, I, I can know. You and I can both know that our ultimate victory is guaranteed. I mean, some of you are so overwhelmed right now with your, by your struggles with sin, right? There are some things you just can't seem to get your arms around or get a hold of. I mean, maybe some addiction or pornography, some hurt habit or hang-up. Right? Listen, Christ is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. And it shows you that uh, your victory, he holds your victory for you even when you don't feel victorious. And it's so important to understand this. So the writer of Hebrews is just saying this. Jesus is a king who got involved. He's a champion who saves. He's a brother who is not ashamed. And he is a priest who can help. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, he's saying, listen, Jesus will be any or all of those things to you if you will let him. And, and let's not lose the forest for the trees. Here's what this author is saying. This is such a simple message. He's just saying, look, whatever is going on, Whatever you struggle with, whatever you are going through, whatever is happening in your life, look to Jesus. Look to Him. Do you need courage? Your champion fights for you. His opinion is the only one that matters. If He is for you, who can be against you? Are you anxious or worried? Jesus is sitting on the throne and he is good and he cares for you and he's already demonstrated just how much he cares for you by dying, suffering, dying and bleeding out on a cross. Are you lonely? Your brother and your friend has promised you that he will never leave you and never forsake you. Are you discouraged at your lack of victory over sin? Jesus was victorious over sin, and he knows just how to come alongside you and help you find your way through sin. Are you a control freak? Oh, come on, don't look at me so innocently. I know many of you are control freaks because I just know you, right? The author here would say, look, look at Jesus. Why would you ever want to be in control when you can give control back to him? Because he loves perfectly and he loves completely. He's not like you and I. Are you struggling in faith? Look at the glory of Jesus. He welcomes doubters. He's patient with their questions. Listen, whatever you lack, I, I don't know what it is, but I know this. You don't need a new fad or a new teaching or a new willpower or a new motivation. What you need is a Savior to trust and run to as your refuge. That's what every one of us in this room needs, right? And listen, this is the difference between the gospel and religion, See, religion takes a look at your problem and it tells you to do better, to more closely follow the rules, and to try harder. The gospel tells you just to look upon Jesus and what he's done for you. See, religion is spelled this way, D-O, do, just do, go, work hard, try harder, get better, 
you know, do more, be gooder, you know, whatever, right? But the, the gospel is just, no, done. It's been done by Jesus. Let's rest in that. And in a few weeks, we're going to talk about what it looks like, how the gospel brings rest to ordinary men and women. And for some of you, all your life, you've been told, get to know yourself. Find the strength within and, and that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying at all. He's saying, no, don't look in yourself. That'll just, be, that'll just result in futility and darkness and failure and shame and disappointment. You need a Savior. Look up. Look to Jesus. Don't just look within yourself. Let Jesus send his Holy Spirit to live in you so that it's a new day. That's what you need. Don't look within yourself. Look up at Jesus. Find your strength. Find meaning. Find purpose in Him. Because He is a King who got involved. He's a brother who is not ashamed. He's a champion who can save. And He is a priest who can help. This is our Jesus. Not the Jesus of our imagination, but the Jesus that's found in Scripture. So what I want to do is I just want to pray for some of you because there are some of you in the room and there's a lot of stuff going on in your life and what you need more than anything else is to take this author's advice and to look to Jesus and to open up your heart just a little bit to Him. You know, in the Christmas story, we always, we kind of lament that there was no room for Jesus at the end, but there's a far more um, uh, horrible thing is when people won't make room for him in their heart or in their mind or in their lives. So the author of Hebrews would just say, look, open your heart wide to him. Embrace him, follow him, yearn for him, look to him, trust in him. He has proven himself trustworthy. So what I want to do is just give you an opportunity for a moment to just look to Jesus for whatever is going on in your life. So can we just bow our heads together and will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you that your son is our champion, that he's our king, that he's our brother, and that he's our priest. We give you thanks that because of him we can come into your presence. God, you're, you've said that there's no one nothing like your son, and we're seeing that week after week in this study. We're so grateful in our hearts and our minds for what you're showing us in your word. Lord Jesus, there are some men and women here today, and they need nothing more than to open up their hearts and minds to you. Would you help them do that right now? Would you help them to confess that they've, uh, you know, that they've erred, they've sinned, they've made mistakes before you, and would you be their forgiver for that? You promise that if we confess our sins to you, you'll purify us from all, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So would you do that in this moment for them as they ask you to be their forgiver? And Lord, would you also, we, just, we know that we need your leadership in our lives, Lord Jesus, that we need you to lead and guide us every day. We need to be your followers. We need to be your students, your disciples. So Lord Jesus, would you uh, begin to lead and guide these men and women today and help them learn how to hear and know your voice. And I just ask this, 
um, in the mighty name of the resurrected Jesus. Amen. Hey, so if you prayed that prayer, we definitely, for the first time, we definitely want to know that. If you would, uh, you can, you know, fill out a prayer card and put that in the box here, or you can go online and let us know you made that decision. However, you're more comfortable, it's important that you do that. And so, uh, hey, I'm so glad you guys chose to worship uh, with us today. May you know Jesus this week as your king, as your champion, as your brother and as your priest. God bless you guys. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Hey, listen, if a few of you can stick around and help us put uh, chairs away after this service for our student ministries uh, this week, that'd be awesome. God bless you guys.